I'm reading from the second chapter of John, if you'd like to follow along. In a moment, we're going to be looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this paragraph is one of a handful in the New Testament in which Mary plays a significant part. John, the historian, says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out some now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, but did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and after the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, but they did not stay there many days. There is no human relationship that is so intimate, that is so completely marked by trust and devotion as that between a mother and her young child. We who are fathers have all observed this sweet bond, some of us have felt a twinge of envy because of it. We smile at the sight or the memory of it, but recognize that this is something that God in his great wisdom has reserved for mothers and their children. How sweet life would be if friendships between men or friendships between women, women could be so satisfying. How pleasant and rewarding life would be if the relationships between men and women could be so open and unfettered. But because of our fallen nature, the fullness of such joys is always just beyond the outstretched arms of our longings. And all of these relationships with, between mothers and their young children, of all of them, none is so charming for us to consider as that between the most blessed of all mothers and the most blessed of all sons, that between Mary and Jesus. She carried him first in her womb and then on her hip. She nourished him at first from her own body and then from her table. Her thoughts and prayers were filled with him even before he was born. His first words were but an echo of what he had heard her say. His first steps were taken as she held his hand. If he cried at night, he was there in a heartbeat. And when he laughed during the day, she was always there to laugh with him. His native desire to be in those places where the praises of his father were sung was enhanced by her love for such places. And his young mind, 
free from the restraints and distraction of sin, but needing yet to be trained, was shaped by her delight in the word of God. As the Son of God, he is the author of the scriptures. As the Savior of mankind, he is the subject of the scriptures, and yet he had to learn them as a young son of man. And it's quite possibly true that some of the passages nearest his heart were those that his mother had had him commit to memory in earlier times. Did this poor but godly mother teach her son, man shall not live by bread alone? Did this devout believer, who so often wanted things to be different, teach her son, you shall not tempt the Lord your God? Did this first among all mothers who feared and loved God above all else in life, teach her son, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve? On this Mother's Day, I'd like to look with you at a few passages of Scripture that give us insight into the kind of person and mother that Mary was. The last glimpse of Mary the Bible affords us is found in the first chapter of the book of Acts, the history of the apostolic church, where we find these words in verses 13 and 14. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. The roll was taken in the upper room, whether on a piece of paper or in the memory of someone who was there. And on that roll we find the name of Mary, the mother of Jesus, numbered simply among the disciples of her son, following his instructions and waiting for the coming sign of the new work of the Holy Spirit. It's sometimes hard for us as Protestants and Presbyterians to give Mary the kind of respectful attention that she deserves because of the excesses of veneration that have come to be assigned to her elsewhere. One major Christian denomination has become almost cultish in its adoration of Mary and its devotion to her. Doctrines have been invented by man, declaring her immaculate conception, her perpetual virginity, her bodily assumption into heaven. And from our standpoint, far worse than these erroneous ideas, she is now believed to be able to hear the prayers and worthy of the worship of Christian believers. They call her the mother of God. They speak of her as being the queen of angels. They regard her as being as real a mediator between God and his people as is his son, Jesus Christ, and she is very close to being regarded as the fourth person of the Trinity. Without a doubt, these excesses are all well-intentioned inventions expressing respect for this most useful servant of God but they are inventions nonetheless. No man and no church has the right to travel beyond the limits set by Scripture, whether to fill in the gaps of sacred history or to embellish divine truth. The Scriptures assign no such experiences or attributes or veneration to Mary. 
The last time we find mention of her name, it's just as a part of a list of believers waiting in the upper room. And rather than being at the head of that list, as one would expect if the early church agreed with the later church about her importance and value, her name appears near the end of that list. And immediately following this record of who was present, the historian tells us of an important piece of business that the early church gave its attention to. They needed to find a replacement for Judas, who had fallen from his place among the twelve. And we notice that it was Peter, and not Mary, who presided at that meeting. And we notice that to make their selection between two apparently equally qualified men, Barsabas and Matthias, instead of consulting Mary, who was present, they cast lots to determine the matter. But beyond that, her presence in the upper room speaks to us of a great transition that had taken place in Mary's life and in her relationship with her son. She who once held him tightly and protectively in her arms would pass to the end of her days, held tightly and protectively in his. She whom he once fully trusted and depended upon had come to a point in life at which she fully trusted and depended upon him. She who once taught him to obey had become his servant. She who once loved him as her infant son came to love him as her God and her Savior. She who once took him by the hand, helped him to stand, and guided him in his first steps upon the earth was now willing and eager to take his hand and follow him step by step to the end of her days. Luke, the historian, tells us of a number of faithful men and women waiting in the upper room for the fulfillment of the promise of Christ. And he's very careful to tell us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Mary's penultimate appearance in the biblical record is found in John 19, where we find her at the foot of the cross bearing the dying body of her son. The Apostle John, the author of the gospel, is at her side. And two of the two of them, we hear the Lord say, Woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, Behold your mother. Scholars in the language of the New Testament tell us that this word woman is not one of disrespect or dismissal, but rather one of fondness and honor. It's the same word Jesus uses to address his mother in our text in John 2, describing the wedding at Cana of Galilee. We read this piece of important ancient history and are moved by the love of Christ for his mother. Here, knowing her desolation and loneliness, he asks John, evidently his best friend on the earth, to take care of his mother. For the Lord, in the midst of the horrors of his own suffering, to take need, or note of the need of others and to use much of his failing reserve of energy to address those needs is to us an amazing reminder of the depth of his love and his kindness. It's easy for us to look as we're so rightly impressed by the Lord's character. What this passage tells us about the devotion and carry character of Mary, his mother. You remember that the evening before, his disciples fled into the night when armed men came to take Jesus prisoner. 
And on this most grand and awful of Fridays in human history, as the Son of God hung suspended between heaven and earth, most of them were nowhere to be found. Later we find these same people, men and women alike, cowering behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. But here in the clear light of day, we find this lady whose only power was found in her devotion to God and her love for her son, standing so near to him as he died, as to be as much the object of the scorn of his enemies as Jesus himself. Mary loved Jesus more than life itself, and her faithfulness is a model for us to imitate. How often do we silence our prayers of grace or gratitude when some of the chairs around the table at which we're preparing to eat are filled by those known to be cynical of our faith in Jesus Christ? How often do we mute our testimony in the presence of those who scoff at the precious things that we believe? How often on the Lord's Day do we choose the golf course or the soccer field for the place where our friends are gathering to sing the praises of Jesus Christ. At such times as these, may God call to our mind the simple image of this marvelous Hebrew woman standing at the cross. An interesting passage in terms of the insights that it gives us into the character of Mary is our text found in the second chapter of John when we read of the the wedding at Cana of Galilee. John tells us that there was a wedding in this town. The town, by the way, was about 10 miles from Nazareth, which made it a considerable journey and informs us that Mary was there. Later in the record, we learn that Mary was working behind the scenes of this celebration and therefore was aware of the pending embarrassment the couple being married were about to experience. And from this We can safely assume, first of all, that Mary was probably related either to the groom or to the bride and was invited for that reason. But beyond that, that she was asked to be there in part because of her energy and her organizational skills. As I see her, Mary is an excellent example of the kind of woman who is profiled in the 31st proverb. A godly woman whose character and behavior enhanced the reputation of her husband, who was one of the village's elders. An energetic, competent, well-organized lady who is focused in life and has very little idle time. I sense all of this in John's record of this wedding at Cana because it was Mary who told Jesus about the shortage, having inside information about what was going on behind the scenes. And then it was she who gave orders to the servants who were there. But even larger than this impression of a very capable woman working with the staff to make this wedding a success is her willingness to trust and to rely upon Jesus in the midst of a crisis. Since the death of her husband, Joseph, Jesus, as the oldest son, had become the head of the family in Nazareth, and she had learned of his competence from her personal experience with him. And it's interesting for us to notice this, because if Mary is the kind of woman I think she is, her yielding to Jesus is an even more remarkable thing. Intelligent, competent, energetic people often find it very hard to rely on others. They tend to be very independent and self-reliant. But here we find this exceptionally talented lady 
knowing that her son would find a solution to the problem and completely investing her trust in him. How rich our lives become and how rewarding we find our faith when we do the same thing. In the records of the birth of Christ, particularly those found in the third gospel, we learn something about Mary's quiet manner and her contemplative character. Luke appears to have had the privilege of interviewing Mary as he collected material for the history that God had commissioned him to write. Therefore, he tells us more about the birth of Christ than any one of the other Gospels. Matthew alone tells us about the pilgrimage of the wise men, but it is Luke who records the mission and the announcement of the angel Gabriel the excited visit and testimony of the shepherds, and then those strange but wonderful things that were said by Simeon and Anna in the temple. And Luke alone, revealing something of Mary's character to us, tells us that Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The true religion of the Jews was, and the true religion of Christians is, a contemplative faith. The first psalm describes as blessed by God, that person who meditates often on the word of God. The 23rd proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Paul wrote, whatever things are true or noble or pure or lovely or worthy of praise, meditate on these things. And in the Gospels, we read that immediately after his baptism, Jesus was driven into the wilderness of Judah by the Holy Spirit. He was there for at least 40 days, and he fasted, but fasting was not the primary reason for his being there. The reason was contemplation or meditation on the Scriptures. Every one of us in this room who has tried to study the Bible and find on its pages answers to the questions of our faith and the questions of life has expressed the frustration, and we have asked, why doesn't God just tell us simply what we want to know? Why does he make it so difficult? And perhaps the answer to that question is that if God gave us simply Uh, simple, easily understood answers to our questions, we would stop asking questions, we would stop thinking about our faith. God wants us thinking about our religion. The Christian faith is a contemplative faith. The Christian life is a meditative life. And if the Presbyterian Church were to create a panoply of saints and assign to each a particular ministry, Mary would surely be the saint of those who ponder their faith. The earliest record of Mary's role in the drama of salvation is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And from it, we learn of Mary's willingness to be of service and use to God, whatever the cost of that service to her. Luke writes that at the time in sacred history for which Mary had been formed and prepared by the hand of God. She was very young, perhaps just in her mid-teens. She was engaged, but she was not yet married. When the angel was sent by God to tell her of the role that she was favored to play in the redemption of his people. 
She was told that she was about to become pregnant in the most unusual of ways, that the child that she would carry would be called the Son of the Most High. How long after this encounter with the angel, the miracle of conception took place, we aren't told. But it was possibly a long enough time for Mary to begin to wonder whether the whole conversation was a figment of her imagination or a dream or perhaps just wishful thinking on her part. She lived in a time of heightened messianic expectations and what Jewish girl had not tried to imagine what it would be like to be that virgin of whom Isaiah wrote 700 years before. But then in the perfect timing of our God, her biological rhythms began to change. She found herself tired or hungry at unexpected times as the holy life within her began to take its toll on her reserves, and she knew that this was no dream. You who are mothers know what we who are not can only vaguely imagine. You remember the questions that troubled your minds and the joys and fears that filled your hearts when you first learned that you were pregnant especially for your first child. You understand better than we what Mary's experience must have been like as the reality of her pregnancy became real to her. How unprepared for motherhood she must have felt. How overwhelmed by the dimensions of her circumstances. And there's something to be considered in Mary's circumstances that does not occur to us naturally in this marvelously liberated age in which we live. And that is that Mary lived in a culture whose values were shaped by the word of God. And in such a setting as that, for a girl to be pregnant and not be married was a condition that would scar her reputation for life. Commentators speculate that the reason that the woman at the well went out to draw water at an unusual hour when other women would not be there was her alleged immorality in the village. A woman caught in the act of adultery was brought to Jesus in the public square for stoning. Nazareth was a small town where years after Joseph's death, Jesus would still be known as Joseph's son. Nazareth would never forget Mary's shameful condition. And with this in mind, we might see in the decree of Caesar Augustus that took Joseph and Mary away from Nazareth just before Jesus was born. Not only God's complex will for human history and his incredible ability to make his will determine events so that his purposes are accomplished, we might also see in that his great mercy for his sweet servant Mary, removing her from the prying eyes and the poisoning tongues of her neighbors in Nazareth. But the point here is Mary's willingness to do the will of God, whatever the personal cost to her. When her son spoke later of the importance of counting the cost before one becomes his disciples, his words may have been a reflection of the wisdom that God had given to his mother. And finally, the Bible tells us nothing of Mary's parents or the nature of the home in which she was raised. But it doesn't stretch credulity too far for us to assume that she was a part of a godly family. 
that she was taken regularly to the synagogue, that she visited the temple with her parents on those occasions required by law, and that she was taught the scriptures in her home. There's a common question that we ask of children. We ask a boy, we ask a girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? In the world around the church, the answers are familiar and predictable. A child says, I want to be a teacher, a pilot, a rock star, a famous model. I want to be rich, famous, powerful, popular. I want to travel. I want to write books. I want to have lots of leisure time. These are among the answers that the children of the unsaved would give to our question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I believe that if Mary had been asked that question when she was a little girl, she would have said, I want to be a godly woman. And this, to a great extent, would have reflected the faithfulness of her parents who took seriously the admonition of the scriptures to train up a child in the way that he should go. Fathers, mothers, if your child were to be answered or asked this very important question about life, And if his answer to that question would be, I want to be a godly man, I want to be a godly woman, then you can fairly expect to hear one day, as Mary certainly already has, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Our God, most of us have been brought by our calendar to a day of great joy and appreciative memories. We thank you for our mothers and the role that they played in our lives. But far more important than that, we come to this place in many cases as those who have responsibility for younger lives. And, oh God, we pray that we might be found faithful. The time in which we live is such a trial. The world is so black. There are so many temptations awaiting our children and grandchildren outside the doors of the church. We pray that we might be faithful in pointing them to Jesus and to the cross and to your word. Oh God, we pray that if they were asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Their first answer would be, I want to be godly. This we ask and to this we commit ourselves.